So just share with us what God's put on your heart. Okay, thank you, Pastor. Uh, it uh, is a privilege to be here. We just, uh, my wife and I just came from uh, Fort Dodge, uh, our state convention there. So we're psyched up on what the power of the word, what it can do, and the power of the Bible mm -hmm. in, in people uh, getting a copy of God's word in their lives are changed forever. I'd like to read uh, a, a little bit on, on how the Gideons International, uh, the little bit of the history of them. They were founded in 1899. The Gideon International serves as an extended missionary arm of the church, is the oldest association of Christian business and professional men in the United States. Also, the women uh, serve uh, with us also, uh, called the Auxiliary. Some of the highlights from our long history of service. In the autumn of 1898, John H. Nicholson of Janesville, Wisconsin, arrived at the Central Hotel at Piscobel, Wisconsin for the night. The hotel was crowded, but he was offered a bed in a double room with Samuel E. Hill of Beloit, Wisconsin. So a few things have changed over the years. These two individuals did not know each other, but the hotel was full, so they, they uh, were in the same room together. Uh, the two men soon discovered they shared a common belief in Christ. They decided to have their evening devotions together. During their prayer time, both felt the call to begin developing an association. And the first meeting was called on May 31st, 1899, the two men met again at Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, where, did, where they decided the purpose of their association would be to band Christian commercial travelers together for mutual recognition, personal evangelism, and service for the Lord. They decided to call a meeting in Janesville, Wisconsin, on July 1st, 1899, at the YMCA. Only three men were present at the meeting in Janesville, John H. Nicholson, Samuel E. Hill, and William J. Knights. They organized with Hill as President Knight, as President Knights and as Vice President Nicholson and Secretary Treasurer. When it came to decide the name of the association, the men held a special prayer time to ask that God might lead them to select the proper name. They arose from their knees and Mr. Knights said simply, we shall be called Gideons. He then proceeded to read the story of Gideon from the 6th and 7th chapters of Judges. In light of the fact that nearly all the Gideons in the early years of the association were traveling men, the question naturally arose as to how they might be more effective witness in hotels. One trustee went so far to suggest that the Gideons supply Bible for each bedroom of the hotels in the United States. So. From there, at, as I said, the rest of the story, and I was encouraged when I saw the, the, uh, the world on the, on the wall, the, all the countries. The Gideons are associated, or they have representation, Gideon camps in 200 countries throughout the world. And of course, uh, we are known a lot by the hotel and motel Bibles that I'm sure that uh, some of you have seen in hotel rooms but it's not just there we also through your ongoing contributions and support we distribute Bibles and New Testaments at schools and colleges in prisons and hospitals many other important traffic lanes of life we provide scriptures for police 
fire, and medical personnel, as well as for those in our military serving at home and abroad. We also have a, a uh, program that's called International Scripture Blitz, where I was privileged to go to uh, Mexico City in the spring of 2007, and also in Nigeria, Africa, in, uh, in uh, 2012, the fall of 2012. These trips are, are, of course, paid by us as Gideons. We were there for two weeks, and what we do Everything is planned by the local Gideons of universities, colleges, uh, the places I just mentioned, a lot of uh, testaments that we distribute. And between those two countries, we distributed over a million uh, copies of God's Word. There was, I remember one in Mexico City. It's got to be the, I think it is the largest city in the world. I know it's, it's big. You can go in just about any street corner in that city and a hundred testaments you can you can distribute in three minutes and it's just people everywhere but uh, I recall the first the first uh, day that we were there we went to a large university where we distributed about 94,000 testaments to to uh, to the kids there I just want to read one uh, hotel uh, testimonial here. Bernie was a hard-nosed businessman in Australia. He frequently stayed at hotels and occasionally read Bibles placed by the Gideons. However, life became so bad that he considered ending it all by jumping from an eighth-floor hotel balcony in Brisbane. However, strangely, he went inside and prayed. Then he noticed the Bible. In those pages, he found Christ and the reason to live. Bernie is now the Bible teacher and CEO of Christianity Works which is based in Sydney. He speaks on radio programs that are broadcast to 160 countries through 1,000 radio stations to more than 10 million people, and he receives testimonies from people converted throughout his ministry. And as I mentioned, too, uh, you know, we do distribute uh, testaments at, at universities, colleges, uh, Iowa and Iowa State, the Iowa Gideons are there every year on the uh, campus distributing God's word. And so uh, we can see here that through the grace of God and through the loving support of the local church, as I told the pastor earlier, you know, we couldn't do it without the church. You know, we go to the pastor for money, for people, and uh, for support in this ministry. <clears throat> Through your support of the church and more countless donors, more than two billion Bibles and New Testaments have been placed through our association. The distribution of our first billion scriptures by Gideon members spanned 93 years from 1908 to 2001. Distribution of our second billion, however, was completed in just 13 years from 2002 to 2015. On an average, more than two copies of God's Word are distributed per second, and over one million Bibles and New Testaments are distributed every four days. Today, there are more than 270,000 Gideon and Auxiliary in 200 countries, territories, and possessions across the globe. You and your church have given your money to make it possible for others to learn about the love of God by giving them access to His Word. 
and as I mentioned, uh, 270,000 Gideons and Auxiliary. All of the uh, at the national headquarters in uh, Tennessee, all the staff there is paid by our annual uh, dues that we have to pay. If you do, you know, if the Lord lays on your heart to give to this ministry, 100% will go to Bibles and distribution of Bibles. And I just, you know, I was moved last night, just last evening. I said we just came from a convention. We had a, uh, a testimonial speaker from a prison testimony. This uh, Brian Cole was his name. He's probably in his upper 40s at this time. And uh, he was into everything. I mean, he's got tattoos everywhere. He even had a tattoo, he said, he put on the bottom of his foot of Christ. He said, so I could tread on him whenever I wanted to. He was into Satanism and uh, alcohol, drugs, everything, you name it. He had killed a, an individual. And uh, he said he was 44 years old. I think it was 2009 when he was in prison last. And he said this old 74-year-old senile Gideon came up to him. <laughs> and he said, I didn't like him. And, uh, but, you know, to make a long story short, he, he kept ministering to him. But he said, it was soon after that he found a testament such as this on the floor of a prison somewhere in prison. And that changed his life, drastically changed him. The Lord cleaned him up 100%, and he's on fire for the Lord. And, you know, when I hear testimonies like that, it's not what we do. It's what the power of God's word does to individuals. And uh, his testimony is just amazing. He resides in Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, he doesn't look like the typical guy that would come in here. But he said when he come through those doors yesterday at the motel, he said there was one Gideon come right up to my face and asked me, are you a Christian? Or started talking to him. And he said, I really respect that. And he said, uh, we all as Christians, we just need to be more bold for, for Christ. And that was a wake-up call to me also to, uh, and a challenge. So, But uh, also, uh, I just want to say today again that uh, we sure appreciate uh, your support of the local church. We couldn't do it without the churches. And uh, we don't take it lightly that the pastor gives us time behind the pulpit. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. So we are going to take an offering now, and so if you need an envelope. Uh, make it out to a better life. We'll give them one check. Ushers, come forward. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this organization. We thank you, Father, that through them, the Word of God is being shared throughout this world that we live in. And Father, we know how important the Word is. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to come to Him. And so, Father, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have today to invest in your Word, in the Bible. And Father, we just believe that as the Word continues to go forth, that lives are gonna be, gonna continue to be changed. Just as the man that he shared that was in prison that heard the Word, the other man that was in the hotel that heard the Word, that changed their lives. Father, we know that nothing can change lives as your Word can. And so, Father, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to give. And Father, we give in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and receive the offering. And so everything will be given to Gideon's. I'll talk to him afterwards how he wants that done, but uh, we'll give him a check, and uh, we get to participate in that. This morning I want to talk with you about... Um, Deliverance from self-centeredness. I mean, if you take a look at the world today, um, it, is, it is so self-centered. It focuses on self. And um, what happens when we, we get into that place, it, it opens all sorts of areas of destruction. You know, we, we think of, for example, with, with marriages. Why, why, why are there, there are difficulties in marriage? It's because of, of self-centeredness. We, we look out for ourselves rather than, than our partner. We see that in, in so many areas of life where, where difficulty comes in. It's because we, we focus on my needs rather than somebody else's needs. And you know, Jesus is the example that we look to. Jesus so loved that he gave. And if we uh, can overcome that focus on self, because it always, it always leads to separation. It always leads to destruction when we, when we focus and put all of our energies into self. And the thing about it is we're never satisfied. We're never happy because, you know, I, I know you've heard the old saying, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know, I don't know, I really like to receive myself. <clears throat> you know, but it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But it's not because of the material things that you receive. It's what it, what it does on the inside of you. To be able to give of yourself. To be able to, to stop thinking about oneself for a moment and begin uh, to think of somebody else. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews the 12th chapter. You know what happens when we, when we get self-centered? We, we don't leave an opening for the grace of God. You know, we like to talk about the grace of God. We like to think we have and receive the, the grace of God. 
But you know, when we become self-centered, when it all becomes about me, that translates into every area of our life. That translates over into the area where we can't really trust God because we're focusing on self. So then what happens? We get back into self-effort once again. We begin to look at it from the standpoint of what I, what I need to do, what I can do. But in, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and I'm gonna begin reading in the 14th verse, it says, pursue peace with all people. <clears throat> you, gotta, you have to pursue it because, you know, some people aren't very peaceful. <laughs> have, you, have you met that person yet? Um, why are you looking at me? You know, but, but it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You see, it's, it's like when we, we begin to lose our peace. There's this, it's almost like there's a, there's a veil that's in front of us. We can't, we can't see the Lord. We can't see the blessings that he's made available to us because we're overwhelmed with self. But he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look, <clears throat> looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. You know, a while back we, we talked about, we, we had a message, and, and the message was falling from grace. And... Uh, you know, in the past, and I think oftentimes individuals think, well, when you're talking about falling from grace, you're talking about losing your salvation. You're, you're, you're talking about beginning to do wrong things. And what happens is you begin to lose, you, you begin to fall from grace. But you know, what's it's, it's interesting about that <clears throat> is if, if that were true, then it wouldn't have been grace in the first part. Because grace isn't, based on what I do. Grace is always based on what Jesus has already done for me. And so falling from grace doesn't mean that I begin to do bad stuff. I begin to do the wrong thing. Falling from grace means I get my attention off of Jesus and I get my attention or I get my focus back on me. Falling from grace is when we get to the point where we, we don't believe that what Jesus has done for me is enough. And therefore, I have to add something to it. You know, if you're coming Wednesday evening, we're teaching on, uh, we're, we're going through, through Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul says to the church in Galatia, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, or having begun in grace, why are you reverting back to self? Why are you reverting back to your own effort? Why are you reverting back to the law? And you see, that's what falling from grace is. Grace is saying, Jesus, what you've done for me isn't enough. And therefore, I have to do something. I have to add something to it. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If we really believe that Jesus has accomplished what he's accomplished in our life, 
There's a motivation there. There's a motivation there to serve him. There's a motivation to work. There's a motivation to do more than we've ever done. But it isn't to do it to get something because we've already got it. Jesus has already done it. And so here he says, let me start at the beginning again, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And this is what happens when we fall short. Lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. And so when we begin to fall short of the grace of God, and we begin to rely upon our own efforts once again, what happens is, is we begin to, through our efforts, we try to keep the law. And it says, what does it say? Lest there be found a, a root of bitterness that springs up. You know, what happens when we begin to fall from grace? What happens when we begin to fall from grace is we begin to rely upon works. And when, I, when we begin to rely upon works, what happens is we begin to compare with one another. I begin to compare what I've done to what you've done. And <clears throat> you're not doing enough. Never comes back to me. It always goes to you. You don't, you're not doing enough. You know, because the issue isn't my issue. The issue is always your issue. Ever notice that, that, that people don't judge people according to the problems that they have in their life? They always judge people according to the problem that the other people have in their life. And so what happens? There begins to be a comparison. There, there, there's a root of bitterness that begins to set in. You know what's so sad amongst Christians? So often Christians have allowed a root of bitterness to come in. And that root of bitterness comes in because we feel like we've been sold short. We feel like we haven't got our just reward. We look at it and we think it's just not fair because everybody else. <clears throat> Lauren gets her name drawn out of a drawing. And here I am trying to pay for my kids' education. And so what happens is a root of bitterness begins to set in. And you know what happens? You can't rejoice with Julie <clears throat> because you're focused on self. Somebody shows up in the parking lot and they got a new car. <sighs> Why they get a new car? The wheels are practically falling off of mine. Why do they get a new car and I don't get a new car? It just isn't fair. What is that? That's self-pity. That's a root of bitterness. You know, the Bible says that we're to rejoice with those that rejoice and we're to weep with those that weep. And you know what? You can't do that with a root of bitterness. Because with a root of bitterness, you can't rejoice with those that rejoice because you're thinking the whole time, why didn't I get it? And you can't weep with those that weep because you're thinking they're getting what they deserve. What a horrible place to be. But you know what? When we can rejoice 
when somebody else is rejoicing. You know what, what happens is we're opening the, opening the door that the blessings can come to us. But you know, as long as we have that, that attitude, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You know, I think we th read through that and I don't think we take time to really evaluate what's taking place here. You know, Esau sold his birthright. Now, the, the, the significance of the birthright under the traditions of the day, the elder son got a double portion and so whatever the inheritance was to be, he was to receive a double portion. He was to receive twice as much as his brother. But he came in from the fields. Now, now, now notice the attitude of both of these individuals. He comes in from the field, he fa he's famished, he feels like he's starving to death. You ever been there? <laughs> there, there are times I feel like I'm starving to death. Obviously, I have a little bit to go on. You know what I'm saying? I am not starving to death. I may feel like it, you know, because my wife cooks so good, I never have those hunger pains in my body. That's, that's, a, that's a foreign thing to me. You know, but if, if, if I feel like I'm, so, I, I'm starving to death, that's where he was. He's coming in from the fields. He feels like he's starving to death. He goes to his brother and he says, <clears throat> give me something to eat starving to death. And his loving brother. Loving brother, who was probably jealous. He was obviously self-centered because he was concerned about the fact that he was only going to get a single portion when his brother was going to get a double portion. And he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give you a morsel of bread and some stew if you give me your birthright. And he says, what's the birthright to me? I'm about to starve to death. I'm not gonna be able to take advantage of it anyway. Number one, he didn't think what his father had for him was that significant. I'll tell you something about Christians. Oftentimes we don't think that which our father has made available, not simply made available to us, willed to us, given to us. We don't think it's that valuable. And so oftentimes we'll sell out, we'll, we'll settle for less, we'll compromise our belief, our position. Why? Because we don't consider what God has given to us as being that valuable. And the reason that we get into that place is that we're self-centered. And the thing about self-centeredness is that we want what we want now. And it's magnified in the society that we live in because in the society that we live in today, everything is instant gratification. You know, we, we, want, our, we want our food now. We want our reward now. You know, we're just like the... Um, prodigal son. Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. We want instant gratification. 
And why is that? Because it's all focused on self. We're not focusing on what we can do for somebody else. We're focusing on self. And just like Esau, because of the desire of instant gratification, oftentimes what happens is we sell ourselves short. We settle for so much less than what God has truly made available to us. We look at what somebody else has and we want what they have rather than realize that God has the perfect gift for me. He has that which I need in my life if I'll but look, wait upon him, if I'll just wait for him. And so here we're, it's talking about falling from grace. Falling from grace isn't falling into sin. Falling from grace is falling from trusting Jesus completely to where we begin to put our trust and we put our confidence in ourselves once again. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, the fourth verse, you have become estranged from Christ. You who have who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now just reading that verse, um, we, we don't get a full understanding of that, but when we, when we study the book of Galatians, we begin to realize what Paul is really addressing here. He's talking about the, 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 the Christians in Galatia who had been walking by grace, and when the Judaizers came along and began to impose law upon them, they began to try to apply the law into their lives once again. And we, we see that the Jews and the Christians, the Jews and the Gentiles who were Christians, were eating together, they were doing everything together. And when the Judaizers came down and they began to apply the law once again, what happened? There was a separation. You know what, that's exactly what's happening in the church today. Because there are individuals that are trying to come back and impose law upon Christians once again, saying that trusting in the Lordship of Jesus Christ for your salvation and trusting in Him alone isn't enough. You've got to abide by this law, or you've got to do this law, or you've got to do this thing to be deserving of the goodness of God. Let me settle that right now. None of us are or ever will be deserving of the grace of God in and of ourselves. It's completely because of what Jesus has done for us. But the moment that we begin to put our trust in self, there's a division that begins to take place. There ought to be perfect unity in the church. We talked about it before church, about my, the words of my grandfather. How he said to me, he says, you know, Dave, it doesn't matter what name is over the church as long as you're preaching Christ and he crucified. That's what's essential. In realizing that it's through the grace and the mercy of Jesus that we have life and that we have it more abundantly. But what happens, we bring in all of our own little deals. And as a result of it, it begins to produce separation because we begin to judge one another, 
because we, we, we begin to look at one another differently. Notice what he says here again. You have been estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. We will never, ever be justified by the law. If we could have been justified by the law, Jesus died in vain. There would have been no need for a Savior if we could have kept the law in our own strength and our own ability. But we're incapable of doing that. And so he says, you're estranged from Christ. What's he saying? He says, you're no longer putting your simple trust in him. You begin to, you begin to trust in your own efforts. You begin to trust in what man is doing. In Luke, the 23rd chapter, Luke, the 23rd chapter in the 34th verse, You know, it's interesting about Jesus, and that's what this is talking about during his crucifixion. Remember what we, we read in that, that first passage? It says, pursue peace with all men. And we look at that and we think, well, that, that's, a, that's an absolute impossibility. Well, it is impossible when we're, we're focusing on self. Here's Jesus. He's being crucified. And he says in in, in verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Here he is, the very individuals that nailed him to the cross. They're down there, they're, they're casting lots for his, his clothing. He's hanging on the cross on the verge of death. And he looks down and he sees what's going on and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let me tell you something. Jesus was not self-centered. Jesus was selfless. And as a result of that selflessness, he was able to look upon the situation and he was able to forgive. You know what our biggest problem is is we feel like we've been wronged. And what we need to do is we need to take it and, and we need to get it in, in perspective. <clears throat> I dare say, because we're all in this room today, none of us have died at the expense of somebody else. Can, can you all agree with me on that one? We're, we're all... I didn't see anybody getting propped up when you came in here this, this morning. You're all, you're all alive. But see, Jesus is our example. And he says that we can forgive because he forgave. You know, anything that any man has ever done to me is minute in comparison to what I did to Jesus. Jesus was willing to die. He was willing to give his life up for me. If I'd been the only man living, 
the only one that would ever accept him, Jesus, would have died for me. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us in this room. Jesus looked at those that took his life and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, that needs to be part of our vocabulary. That we can look when those uh, have sinned against us. When that driver cuts you off. You know, it used to be when you were driving down the road that you had to learn to smile and say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Now, all of you people have these SUVs and stuff. And they're, 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 they're so tall. And I, I pull into a parking space and I'm going to pull out. And, and, and you can't see anything until the back end of your car is way past the back end of the car that you're trying to back out. Or, you, you understand what I'm saying? You know, because, you know, I drive a car. I don't drive a truck. I drive a car. And so everybody else drives trucks these days. Oh, they might call it an SUV or whatever. It's a truck. <laughs> Check the chassis out. It's a truck. And so I'm, I'm pulling out. And you can see a block. I'm still working on this one. You can see a block away. I'm backing out. Do you know how you tell my backup lights are on? <laughs> and the car is moving in a backwards motion. That tells you something. He is in reverse. And it's an interesting phenomena. People speed up when they see that. <laughs> I'm absolutely amazed. They speed up and they honk at you. They're self-centered. Now I'm learning. I'm working on it. I'm still a, I'm st still learning. A work in progress. I'm learning, Father, forgive them because I want to hit them. For a day, no, no, let's move on. But see, how can we not forgive knowing what, what Jesus has truly done for each and every one of us? In Philippians, the second chapter, the third verse, it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let me tell you something, we can't do that if we're only thinking about self. If we're only thinking about how I'm not getting what I think I deserve, that other people are being blessed and I'm not being blessed the way that I ought to. But you know, when we begin to esteem others above self, 
all at once we're able to feel good. And what happens is, I, I, I still believe this principle. You know, Galatians says, be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. We oftentimes talk about that in the area of finances, of sowing financial seed. But you know what? That principle applies to every area of our life. If we sow selfishness, don't be surprised when we don't receive blessing because that's what's going to come our way. But you know, when we begin to think more of others than self, what happens is that begins to come our way as well. Others begin to esteem us. Others begin to think highly of ourselves. But you know what? It doesn't begin with others. It begins with self. As I sow, as I smile, as I give, as I rejoice with those that rejoice, as I weep with those that weep, and stop looking at it from the standpoint of it's all about me and my three. No, it's more than that. It's looking at what Jesus has truly accomplished for each and every one of us. Let nothing be done. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And this isn't, this isn't talking about walking around with this um, I can't do anything attitude. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being meek. It's talking about Moses, how, how Moses was the meekest of men. But yet Moses was able to do tremendous things because meekness means that we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're not going to depend upon self. We're going to depend upon God. We're going to look to him. You know, God has not called a single one of us in this room to be a failure. Not a single one of us. He's called us to be successful. He wants us to be achievers. He wants to be us, us to be more than conquerors. But see, as long as we're focusing on self and my ability, I'm going to fall far short of what I'm going to be able to achieve. If I'm going to achieve anything that is, is going to be beneficial to humanity and society, to the kingdom of God, it's going to be following his instruction, his, in, his direction, my, my, not my whim. And oftentimes that's what we do. We get this idea, we get this whim, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's just straight up us, but we're going to do it. And it's an interesting thing about prayer. Oftentimes our prayer life isn't so much asking God for direction as it is asking God to bless what we've already, the direction we've already decided to go. It's kind of getting the cart before the horse. We need to ask God for his direction. And when he gives us direction, we know that it's already blessed. We don't have to ask for blessing on it anymore. Because he's not going to ask us to do something that he's not already put his stamp of approval on. That he's not already put his blessing upon. 
In Proverbs, the 13th chapter, Proverbs 13, verse 10, It says, by pride comes nothing but strife. By pride comes nothing but strife. I was watching the ball game yesterday and this guy made a really, really good tackle. Took the guy out of bounds, good tackle. And after he took the, got the tackle, he stood over him and he went, you know, showing off his manliness. And, I, and, I, and it got a 15-yard penalty. You know, and the, the team got in the hole and the other team was able to score as a result of it. And I loved what the, the announcer said. The announcer said, that is, that is one of the most selfish acts in football. Because all that that individual is doing is thinking about himself. Do my deal. Not thinking about the team. It's that moment of instant gratification to be able to look down on another player and say, I'm better than you. But you know what? We do that in life all the time. We may not stand over somebody and point our finger at them. But what does, it do, what does that attitude to do? It produces strife. And we need to re-examine our life. Are we, are we living a meek life? A, a meek, meekness doesn't mean weakness. There's a, there's a strength in that. Because meekness means that I'm going to look out for others even above and beyond myself. You know, it applies to football, it applies to other sports, but it applies to life. Though when we live a meek life, we're looking at the welfare, the well-being of those around us. We put their needs, we put their concerns actually above ours. And that's what he's talking about here. By pride comes nothing but strife. But wealth, but but with the well-advised is wisdom. You know, wisdom is available to each and every one of us, and it's well-advised to apply that wisdom in our life. But pride, pride will bring destruction every time. Proverbs 17, verse 14. It says, the beginning, the beginning of strife is like re releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel starts. The beginning of strife is like the letting out, the releasing of water. You know, the farm that I grew up in, southern Minnesota, we had a, we had a quarter mile lane. I was talking about this on Friday and Aaron was making fun of me. He says, yeah, poor daddy had to walk 10 miles in the rain every day, uphill, you know, both ways. But we had this quarter mile lane and, you know, and, and I loved the, the spring of the year because, you know, the snow would be melting and it, it'd take me forever to get up the lane. 
which pleased my sister because I had a sister that was five years older than me. You understand, we, live in the, we lived in the middle of the country. Uh, we had a quarter mile lane. And my sister would not walk up the lane with me because I embarrassed her. <laughs> you know, we would play football and, at school and, and so by the time we got home, my hair would be a mess and, and my shirt would be untucked and my jeans would be dirty and she, I don't believe this. She said my fly was always down. I don't believe that that was true. <laughs> you know, but, but here we are out in the middle of the country walking up a quarter mile lane and she would not walk with me. She would run ahead so that she didn't have to be identified with me. <laughs> but that's really not what I was talking about. But, but in the spring of the year, when, when the when the rain would, the, the, the snow would begin to melt, I would have these dams all over the place. And, and they, would, they would back up and I'd love to watch it because all of a sudden it would get just a little bit of a, a, a crack in my dam and the water would run through it and for a very long, it was just like a gush. It would take the whole thing. It was just so cool. <laughs> it really was. But see, he says, that's how strife is. If you have a life that's full of strife, you need to realize it didn't begin that way. It began with a trickle. And when you don't deal with the trickle, eventually what happens, it becomes a stream and that stream begins to be a flood. And once it becomes a, becomes a flood, you can't contain it any longer. You know, years back, Oral Roberts, he wrote a book and the title of the book, book was Flood Tide. And he's talking about finances, but he, he said in the book, he says, you know, there's, there's one thing you can't contain. You can, you can contain a stream, and you can contain a river, but you can't contain a flood. And where God wants us to be in our finances in flood tide, that means more than enough. But when it comes to strife, he doesn't want you in that level. In fact, what we need to do is when we see that trickle, we need to deal with it. We need to stop it before it gets out of hand. Because strife, which, which causes it to increase in our life, is always based on self-centeredness. Well, Pastor, I was right. What does that have to do with anything? Amen. Don't look at me with that tone of voice. What's that got to do with anything? It isn't about being right. It's about being at peace. Because if we'll stay at peace, things will get right. But the problem with self-centeredness is that I'm right, you're gonna know I'm right, you're gonna, you're gonna agree with me that I'm right, because I'm right. Well, you know what? You can be completely right and be completely wrong at the same time, the way we deal with it. Right isn't the most important thing in the world. Peace with one another is what's the most important thing in the world. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm, what I'm saying here. I'm saying there's times where things have to be confronted and it may not appear to be peaceful at the time, but if it's done properly and correctly, it's always gonna to lead to peace. But you know, it isn't about being right, even in that situation. 
It isn't about being right. It's being about steering that individual in the right direction so that they can have victory in their life. And so the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel starts. I tell you, when you get to the quarrel, it's too late. You're all, it's already full-blown at that point. And, and uh, you know, I, I used to make this statement. I used to say, you know, it, it, it's like when you get in an argument with somebody, poof, it's just like it goes right over their head. It's like they don't hear them, hear you. And I was reading a report one time, and they were talking about the fact that when you, when you get into an argument, when you get into strife, there's a chemical that's, released in your brain and it's like you don't even hear what the other person is saying because you're so convinced you're right. And you say, well, I like discussion. No, discussion is not arguing because the moment that you get into the quarrel, it's no longer a discussion. It's two individuals butting head. Both of them determine that they're right. And neither one of them is going to convince the other person. And so he says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop the contention before the quarrel starts. You know, because what happens is when we get at that place, it opens the door for all sorts of evil. Because that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to produce evil. I, I quoted this from Numbers 12, 3. Well, I didn't quote it, but I mentioned it. It's talking about Moses and says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Moses was humble. You ever, ever notice any time Moses got in trouble was when he wanted to do it his way rather than God's way? You know what? The same thing is true for each and every one of us. We get into trouble when we think we know best. And we're going to do it our way rather than doing it God's way. Rather than humbling ourselves, being meek, and allowing the Word of God to speak to our hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. One last passage in Mark, the eighth chapter, the 34th verse. It says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You know, there, there's, there's an order with this. It isn't just going through a life of denial of self. Uh, because that leads you nowhere. But there's an order to this. Deny self, take up cross, follow me, Jesus said. Why the denial of self? Because yourself will always want to go contrary to the Word of God. It'll always want to go 
contrary to the direction of God because self will always want to go in the direction of what's going to please me, satisfy me, give me the instant gratification that I want. That's where self will always go. And so I take up the cross. It's not talking about getting yourself tacked to a wall someplace. What is a cross? You know, ultimately, the cross that Jesus bore was the cross of obedience. He didn't, Jesus didn't defeat the cross on Golgotha. He, did, he defeated the cross in Gethsemane. It was in Gethsemane when Jesus' flesh was saying, Father, if there be any other way, let's, let's do that. See, he was, he was a man. It's just like you and me. He had set aside his deity. And so the temptation to avoid the cross was very real to him. When he was in Gethsemane and he, he sweat droplets of blood, it wasn't because he is so excited about what he is about to endure. It's because he dreaded it. He knew what was in store for him. And Jesus looked at it, and, and you see, this is, this is where we've taken this totally out of context. You know, Jesus, he really knew what the will of the Father was. He knew that he was to go to the cross, but if there by chance be any other way, let's do it. And he said, but Father, not my will, your will be done. And so we've taken that and we've made it a end to all of our prayers. But see, we don't pray that prayer when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the will of the Father is. For Jesus, it was a prayer of consecration. It was a prayer of dedication. He said, Father, not my will, your will be done. And that's how it's to be in our lives. When we've put down self and we've taken up our cross and... <laughs> We don't like what we see, but we say, Father, not my will, your will be done. We're saying, Father, I consecrate myself unto you. I will do your will no matter how difficult, no matter what's involved, I'm following you. That's where Jesus defeated the cross. You know why we have a problem oftentimes with the direction that we've received in our life? is because beforehand we haven't consecrated ourselves to the Lord. The Lord speaks to us to do something and we, it, it, as far as we're concerned, it's still up for debate. It's still an option. We see it all the time in the lives of Christians. When that critical moment comes, We've got to have already made the decision what we're going to do. Not my will, the will of the Father. You see, the prayer of consecration is a daily prayer. Every morning that we wake up, Father, I'm here to serve you. I love you. And I'll do what you've called me to do. I have 
some things I'd like to accomplish today, but Father, not my will, your will be done. We consecrate ourselves unto him. We serve him with a whole heart. Jesus denied self, took up the cross, and he followed the Father. Why is Jesus our example? I, I, I love Paul, I love his writings. But even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say, just follow me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so, in order to follow somebody as they follow Christ, we have to know what Christ did. Amen? I'll tell you what he did. He denied self. took up the cross. The cross is God's will in and for your life. We take up that cross and we follow him. And so we're not doing it in our own strength and our own ability. See, that's why it always comes back to trusting him, relying on him. We don't do it as an act of our will. We do it as an act of obedience to his will. And that's where we get confused. We get our will and his will confused in our life. We choose his will. And as we choose his will, we'll never fail. We'll never come up short. Because you know, he has something far, far greater for each and every one of us than we can ever imagine. You know, and we're determined to do what I wanna do. We sell ourselves so far short of what God really wants to do in and through our lives. Let's make this decision today that I'm no longer gonna be the center of my life. Christ, Jesus, is gonna be the center of my life. And you know the thing about it is, doing that probably isn't gonna change that much about our life, but it's what it's gonna change is how we live our life. We'll continue doing much of what we've already done. It's just that we're going to have a different focus. We're going to do it different. And we open the door so that he can do mighty things in and through us. And in the end, what happens is he receives all the glory because he's the one that's given us the direction. We stop trying and we start being. We stop trying to be a good Christian. We simply begin being a good Christian because that's who we are. You don't have to try to be what you already are. You're a son of God. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. You're a brand new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. You, you, little old you, can do all things 
through Christ as he strengthens you. It's who you are. It's who we are in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Father, that we can rejoice with those that rejoice. We can weep with those that weep. We can be sensitive to your spirit so that you might lead us to places where we would have never imagined even going. But it's all because of you. And so we want you to be alive. We want you to be awakened in our lives. We want to be hot for the things of God. Lord, will we become lukewarm? Father, turn up the fire that we might be enthusiastic and that we might be determined to fulfill your plan and your purpose so that you might receive all the honor and all the glory. And so, Father, bless us as we go. May we be your representatives in this earth. Use us. Use us to touch the lives of others with the goodness of Jesus. And Father, we ask it in his name. Amen. And so as you go, go in his peace, go in his strength, go in his love. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. Give somebody a hug. Let them know you love them.